Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. A while back, I remember reading a story about a, uh, a five-year-old boy. He lived in Denver, and um, they were getting ready. I've, I've talked with some of y'all getting ready for vacations and those kinds of things, maybe in the summer. His family's getting ready to go on a vacation, and they were going to visit the Grand Canyon. And so his, his dad, this five-year-old boy's dad, told him that they were going to go, you know, uh, visit the Grand Canyon. They were do some camping along the way. They are going to see this, this canyon, and that it was bigger than downtown Denver. And so the little boy got pretty excited about the the possibility of, of visiting the Grand Canyon. So while they're on their way, of course, as five-year-olds do, how much longer before we get there, you know, was coming out of the back seat. And so finally they arrived, and the family, they had a big day planned there, but they finally made it there. And so they do, like everybody, just first time walking up to the rim of the canyon. And, you know, they're, the parents were just in awe. And, and the dad looks down at his little five-year-old son, and is, he's just kind of looking around, bewildered. And so the dad stoops down and says, son, what, did, what do you think of, of this, this incredible canyon? And the little boy said, dad, I thought you said we were going to see a, a grand cannon. He was looking for this gigantic cannon, you know. And because he's a little five-year-old boy, of course, he you know, could imagine himself getting to shoot it, you know. And uh, so... Even when he walked up to see something as beautiful as the Grand Canyon, because his expectations were different, he was let down. You know, so often in our spiritual lives, we find ourselves having an opportunity to see the glory of God, but because it wasn't quite like what we had expected, sometimes we're a a little bit let down. And, you know, Jesus told us in John chapter 8, the Gospel of John records this, that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But sometimes our understanding of the truth gets distorted. And when our understanding of the truth is off kilter, what happens when truth really shows up, we didn't expect. And so we, we are so oftentimes let down. When you're not fully aligned with the whole of God's truth as, as revealed in the whole counsel of God's word, sometimes it will disrupt your faith journey. Not because there's anything inadequate with God. You know, he's perfect in every way. He's glorious in ways we, we can't conceive. But because we have a limited perspective, we start feeling like that somehow, you know, God let us down. Maybe we were trusting in one promise of God. We were just putting our whole trust in that and it didn't didn't come true yet or we thought we were praying in his will and he didn't see it through did the answer didn't come as we hoped God did not deliver the way we thought he would and this morning we're going to look at an encounter of some disciples who had that same experience they had expectations of God and of Jesus specifically that led them down a path that left them despondent and discouraged. They had been at Passover that Easter week leading up to the Resurrection Sunday. They had been part of that. They had seen, uh, imagine, the death 
and heard about the burial of Jesus. They had stayed around in Jerusalem even Sunday morning to the point that they had heard some reports from some of the women who had visited the tomb early that morning and had come back sharing that, that he was alive. But they had seen him die. They had seen what the Jewish rulers had, had done. And so they left Jerusalem that day to head home, I think. They were heading to a place called Emmaus. And they were despondent and they were discouraged. And I want us to pick that up. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, open them to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, we're going to start reading today um, out of verse 13. And uh, we'll read much of this, the remainder of the chapter um, today, not all of it. But I want to start in verse 13. It says this. That very day, now this was Easter Sunday. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened on that, that weekend, that, that Easter weekend, if you would. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. I, I just want to stop there. We're going to keep reading in a second. But I believe that God did that specifically for a reason. We'll unpack that in just a couple of minutes. Pick up verse 17. And he said to them, this is Jesus, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, this is Jesus now, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since those things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that uh, they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but him they did not see. And he, being Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Now we'll continue reading more of that uh, in, in just a moment, but I want to stop there for a moment and just think about these two disciples of Jesus. They were obviously very discouraged, very distraught. They were trudging along, half-hearted, half-doubting, half-believing. They had heard some reports before leaving Jerusalem, but they were still let down. Things had not uh, occurred the way they had anticipated. You know, Jesus could tell by their countenance, the scripture tells us that they were, they were sad. And here's what I want us to see. I want us to see what the source of their discouragement was. Because there was a source of what led them to discouragement. And it's the first point of my message today, and it's simply this. Missed understanding can destroy our joy. Missed understanding can destroy our joy. If you have opportunities to be captured by the message of God, the heart of God, and you miss that, 
and you don't have a whole understanding of the word of God. Uh, God spoke through the prophet uh, Hosea. It's not in your notes, but in Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, uh, it says that God said, my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. If you get only half of God's picture, not the whole counsel of God, there may be a missed opportunity for you, and it can eventually lead to your discouragement, to your frustration. And I want to talk a little bit about that this morning, about this, this missed understanding. And I want you to see how that, that missed understanding of the whole counsel of God can lead you in places of disappointment and doubt, discouragement, maybe even into unbelief. Because these disciples had missed their opportunities for understanding. They had been looking for a certain kind of Messiah. They had been looking for a certain kind of Savior. And when their expectations weren't met, they were kind of dismantled, destroyed. Look at what verse 21 said. It said, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. They were obviously looking at Jesus for him to deliver something that he had not delivered in the way that they thought he should deliver it. They, they thought he was going to be this earthly ruling king set up to redeem Israel and set them free, free from captivity of Roman occupation. They were looking for this king. But their king ended up wearing a crown of what? Thorns. And instead of a royal robe, he had this discarded blanket that was thrown across his shredded shoulders after that beating and scourging. And instead of a regular throne, he ended up with a cross as his throne. And what was the expanse of his kingdom? It was an empty tomb that he got placed in, a borrowed tomb that he got placed in. And then it was sealed over with a stone. And that was the expanse of his kingdom. And the disciples were discouraged and, and distraught. They had read the prophets. They knew the prophecies of the kingdom that was to come. They had read the poetic writings and the pictures they had painted of, of what was to come. They, they had known of the angels announcing a kingdom coming. They heard, heard Jesus preach about the kingdom. A week earlier, the streets had been filled with, with people celebrating Jesus as the, the arriving king. But that's not how it went down. That's not what the final outcome looked like from their perspective because they had missed opportunities to understand what Jesus had taught them and what the prophets had, had said. They were unable to see the real story that was unfolding right underneath their eyes because they weren't looking for it. They were looking for something else, so they'd only seen part of the story. They hadn't seen what Jesus was doing in Gethsemane and on Golgotha, the place of the skull, that he was actually winning a great victory in those places of pain and suffering. And so they, they, they completely missed it, just like we do sometimes, just, just like we do. Sometimes when we're going through our places of pain like our own Gethsemane and suffering and sorrow or our Golgotha, we don't know that God's plan as we move through those is to turn maybe the hurts that we're experiencing, God's got a plan to turn those into hallelujahs one day. We don't, don't know at the moment that the pain that we're going through, that God's going to turn that into this, this pearl of great price, kind of something beautiful. We, we don't understand that because our, we, we have a missed understanding. Right now, we are only able to see part of the story because of that. But he's turning 
our place of skull moments even into something beautiful. That's his promise. Well, those two disciples, just like us, you know, they had an advantage maybe, we think, that they had walked with Jesus, but now they were discouraged and they were despondent and they're on their way home. And all of this because of this misunderstanding that had somehow turned to unbelief. And friends, here's the problem with missing our understanding of the whole counsel of God. It almost always deteriorates into unbelief in our hearts. That's where Satan always takes that. It's always the final kind of destination. But notice what Jesus does. Jesus, he doesn't just let it slip. He calls them out on it. Did you notice that? Look back at verse 25. It says, he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe what? All, all that the prophets have spoken. See, they were only believing parts of it. They were only believing spots of it. They, they had missed understanding because they missed out on some of the other important things that the prophets had said about the coming Messiah. And it led to the discouragement. It led to their defeat. It led to this sadness. Friends, I have found so often in my own life and the lives of others that I've walked with, when we get to a place where we're confused about the word of God, so often it will lead us to discouragement. I've been involved in Christian ministry for almost 40 years now. And I've watched during that time so many Christians get discouraged because they have missed opportunities of understanding of the whole of God's word. And like these two disciples, they don't believe all that the prophets have spoken and, and, and shown. They don't believe the whole counsel of God. And I want you to notice what Jesus does to these two disciples, because it's the very same thing he does for us when we find ourselves there. Jesus challenges them. And here's what Jesus challenges vigorously, I believe. Jesus challenges what I call polka dot faith. He challenges a polka dot faith for the purpose of bringing it to joy. Now, here's what a polka dot faith is. A polka dot faith is a faith that only believes spots out of God's words, the spots we like the most. The other spots we don't, we don't, we don't want to take in. Jesus comes and he kind of challenges that. Now, the first way that he brings challenge to them is this. He brings challenge by, by first seeking them. Jesus first sought out these joyless disciples. He sought them out. He went looking for them. They weren't looking for him. Now, I don't, I don't know about you. I, I, I think if you've walked with Jesus long enough, you have experienced Jesus come looking for you at times when you have kind of gone wayward and fallen into discouragement or maybe on that path towards some unbelief. I know I have. There have been many times when I have experienced Jesus come, coming to seek me. In verse 15, it said, while they were still talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Jesus did that action. Jesus found them right where they were. He didn't find them to condemn them. He didn't find them to condone what they were tracking on either, the decisions that they had made. I believe Jesus had sought them out to claim them back, to, to comfort them. And the other thing that Jesus came to do was Jesus came to teach them. He, he wanted them as he drew near to them. You know, he was going to, to teach them. One of the things that's so important to understand here is that Jesus taught these joyless disciples after he sought them. Now, 
Their experience, I think, is just incredible because the Bible says he opened the scriptures to them and he opened their eyes. I want you to see what Jesus did that first Easter afternoon. He did not take them on an egg hunt. Okay, I know a lot of people do that on Easter afternoon. He didn't take them on an egg hunt. He did take them on a hunt, though. He took them on a hunt throughout the entire council of God, finding Messiah, finding the promised one. Verse 27 tells us that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all scripture the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted like if he was going, that he was going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it's getting toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And he was at table with them. He took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Now, now watch this. In verse 32, it, it tells us this about what Jesus did. It says, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn with us? We're jumping forward now in the story. Did not our hearts burn with us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Now, if you have your Bibles and you write in them, I would encourage you to underline that verse, that he opened the scriptures to them. It's so important to understand that we need God to open the scriptures to us. We, just, just opening this yourself and reading from it is not enough. You need, you need Jesus. You need the Holy Spirit to open the scriptures to you. Then if you jump back up to verse 31, it says, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Not only do you need the Holy Spirit and, and, and God to open the scriptures to you, you need him to open your eyes. I need him to open my eyes. Those are two things that Jesus did for these joyless disciples. First of all, open the scriptures, and then secondly, to, to open our eyes. Both of those are, are exactly necessary. We have to have both. Now, why do you think God engineered it for the disciples not to be able to, to recognize Jesus at first? You know, some people might say, well, he, he was in his resurrected condition, and so he, he looked different. Well, yeah, but he was pretty recognizable at other times in that condition, why was it that, that it said, because in verse 16, this is what it says. It said, but their eyes were kept. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. They, they, they could try as they might. They weren't going to recognize him. Why did God do that? You know, I, I, to me, what would have been the thing to do was for Jesus to show up and say, well, hey, brothers, Jesus is on the scene, man. Let's have a good old time. But the Lord didn't allow that. He kept them from seeing Here's what I believe. This is just what I think here. This is not, I can't take you to a chapter and verse. But I think what Jesus is doing here for these disciples is he's starting to prepare them for no longer being present with his body. Jesus knows that it's not going to be much longer and he's going to leave this earth and head to heaven. And they had to have something that they could go back to and Jesus is bringing them into the word of God. Jesus is driving these disciples away from this physical experience with him into an experience with the living word of God. And so he opens the word to them. He opens the Bible. He opens the, the prophets to them. And he opens their eyes, preparing them for the days ahead when his body is no longer with them. He's preparing them to, 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 to live out of the authority and the power of the, 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 the living word of God. As Kyler prayed earlier, that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It can cut to, to our souls, man. 
He's preparing them to live out of this instead of out of a physical relationship with them. And not only preparing them, but preparing all those who would come after them because of their testimony that we would live out of the authority and power of the living word of God. He's preparing them for that. He's preparing us for that, that we would live and, and walk in that way, pointing out how, how incredible it is. And that's why the Bible tells us that their experience was with, with the word of God was it got burned in their heart. Their hearts were filled with something new when Jesus opened the word of God to them in this, in this unique way. They didn't start out by saying, oh, yeah, we recognize him. They, they, didn't, they didn't go that. They were, they were so deeply moved when they were giving testimony of this experience. They were deeply moved by the encounter that they had with Jesus as he walked them through the word of God. And you and I can have that same experience because now they knew him not through sight, but through the very word of God. That's what Jesus challenged them through. And he walked them around the spots that they had missed. Those, those missed, if you would, opportunities. Those missed opportunities for understanding. Jesus takes them to those spots. Those spots that they had rejected. Those spots about his suffering and his sacrifice. Those spots about his humility and his serving. Remember, they had only believed certain spots. Jesus has taken them to the whole counsel of God because he always comes against polka dotted faith because he knows it will eventually lead us to great disappointment. And so that's that, that message. And it says that Jesus, in this message that he would deliver, began in verse 27, it says, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets. All, all the prophets. But basically what he's saying here is, remember, Moses is credited with being the author of the first five books of the Bible. And then it talks about all the prophets. This was just another way of saying the whole Old Testament. Jesus is just taking them through pretty much the entire Old Testament, showing himself. This is so important. Verse 27, it says, In beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning what? Himself. He wasn't just taking them through all the scriptures, you know, for, for no reason. He was wanting them to see in every page, in every story, in every command, see himself. That's what Jesus is wanting to, them to do, to see him in all of scripture. Now, the New Testament hadn't been written yet, of course. But when you read this book, one of the things you need to be looking for on every page is Jesus. Now, sometimes, it, I know, he's hiding in the shadows. Sometimes there's moments it's hard, you know, when you're reading in Leviticus, sometimes it's hard to see him. I know that. Okay? I get that. He's in there. You just keep looking. You just keep looking. Jesus is on every page. And he wanted them to be captured by the power of that. And so he, he, he does that. And so when you're reading God's word and you're not seeing Jesus, go back and read it again. Go back and read it. Read it looking, looking for Jesus. Because when, when you see Jesus on the pages of this book, it transforms this book. It transforms its power in your life. It transforms its value to your soul. And you're going to want more of it because you'll see Jesus everywhere. Whether it's in the prophecies, you know, whether it's in the commands, whether it's in the parables, Jesus is in there. And Jesus challenged these, I call them the Emmaus two. Jesus challenged the Emmaus two on that day. He wanted them to see when Jesus was 
walking and teaching. In John 5.39, it records a time when Jesus was teaching the people and he was even challenging the, the, the religious leaders of the day. He talked to them about the reasons why they searched the scriptures. And then he goes on in verse 39 to say, it's that they bear witness about me. That's the purpose of the scriptures is to bear witness about Jesus. Now, I've been reading them and studying them long enough to know that until you see Jesus on the pages of this book, it will not become the wonderful book that you hear others speak of it as. Look for Jesus on every page. And, and when you do, here's one of the things that will happen. You'll suddenly get why so many Christians were willing to sacrifice their lives to have this book translated into every tribe, nation, and tongue. Because they want, they know that it reveals Jesus to, to humanity. And so people give their lives for it. Now, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, look, look for Jesus. You're not going to really know him apart from his word. And so Jesus is walking on this road to Emmaus. Uh, it's about seven miles. How long do you imagine that it takes average human being to walk about seven miles? About two hours. It takes about two hours for average human being to walk about seven miles. I don't know about you, but man, I would love to have the podcast of that message. I mean, Jesus teaching through the whole Old Testament. Could you imagine you know, what that would be like to just have Jesus teach you through the, the whole Old Testament. It would be an incredible experience. And, and what he's doing is he's showing the Messiah. The Messiah. Remember, they don't know it's Jesus that they're with yet. And he's just going through the Old Testament. There's the Messiah. There's the Messiah. There's the promised one. He's coming. This is what it's going to be like. This is what he's going to teach. This is his power. He's teaching them. He's showing them the, the beauty of Messiah. Friends, one of the things, especially about the Old Testament that is so beautiful, is when Jesus comes, the fulfillment of all those beautiful prophecies from the Old Testament. You know, there's over 300. There's over 300 uh, prophecies about, about what Jesus would be like, what, what he would do, what he would say, how he would live, where he would come from. It's incredible. One of the ways I like to think about that, those prophetic words, is uh, as a portrait. Have you ever seen somebody uh, sit and somebody paint their portrait? You know, and it, it, it takes a while, but eventually it, it's, you start, that person starts showing up. Well, imagine the, uh, the, those 300 plus Old Testament prophecies being this portrait of Jesus as being painted. And so it starts in, in Genesis, and there's a brushstroke about the Messiah, and you just keep going throughout the whole Old Testament. Now, here's the, here's the interesting thing. The subject wasn't there. The prophets did not have, when they were painting this portrait of Jesus, they didn't have Jesus yet because he hadn't been born yet. They're, they're painting this picture hundreds of years before, and it's not just one artist. One artist starts, and he paints a few strokes, and then another artist, prophet, comes along. He paints a few strokes. And another artist comes along. And there's hundreds of years between some of them. And there's an excess of 25 different artists that paint their stroke onto this canvas, this one portrait. And when you get to the end of that, there is this picture, this portrait of who Messiah would be. And Jesus fulfills it completely. 
He completely fulfills those 300 plus prophecies. Now, if, if you would like to know what the, um, what the, we'll call it the scientific mathematic calculation of uh, the odds of one person fulfilling all those, you send me an email and I'll send you some links to some sites you can read. They're real in depth. You can go into that if, you're, if, if you like to study that kind of stuff. It's a really big, long number. I, even, I decided I wasn't even going to try to tell you what it was. It's just this gigantic number that all of the prophecies could be fulfilled in, in one person's life. But you think about this. You go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and there's this kind of first brushstroke. Right after the fall of man, we're told in Genesis 3.15 that the Messiah, the one that would redeem, would come from the seed of a woman. And so we know out of that that it wasn't going to be some kind of angel being or you know, some kind of creature or something like that. It was going to be someone that came from the human race. You go a little further in Genesis, Genesis, you get to Genesis chapter 9, and when you're in Genesis chapter 9, you discover suddenly that uh, the, the, the Messiah is going to come from the, 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 the tribe of Shem, the Shemite people, or what really become the Semitic peoples, that he's going to come from that, that, that people group of the human race. And then out of that, you trace it a little bit further, you get to Genesis chapter 12, and you discover that this new nation is going to be formed from, from Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob, who would have his name changed to Israel. And the nation of Israel is born, and the promised one is going to come from that. You read on a little further in the story, and a, some more brushstrokes are being painted, and you, you, you discover that he's going to come from the family of Jesse out of this, this lineage. And then not only that, that uh, it, this person is going to be born of a, of a virgin. You read about that. Isaiah speaks of that in Isaiah 7. So there's another brushstroke that goes on. And you keep going down, and we d- discover that not only is it going to be born of a virgin, virgin, but uh, this virgin is going to have to be in Bethlehem because that's where he's got to uh, be born is in the city. So there's all these brushstrokes, and you get to the end of it, and there's this beautiful portrait of Jesus all through the gospel, this beautiful portrait of Jesus. Now, friends, here's the exciting part of that as we look back in retrospect. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament tell us this, gives us details about his second coming. Because Jesus is coming back. And just like those first disciples, they had missed understanding of what his first appearance was going to be like. You and I have the opportunity to read from this book and know what his second coming is going to be like. You don't have to live with missed understanding. You don't have to live hopeless and despairing and discouraging. You can, ha- you can be people with hope because those prophets that prophesied about his first coming also prophesied about his second coming. And then we have the writings of the gospel writers and the, the, the teachings of, of, of Paul that tell us that Jesus is coming back. I know right now some days it feels like, it feels like the world is completely done with Jesus. But friends, I promise you this. Jesus is not done with this old world. He has not given up. He hasn't quit. He's got a plan, and and he, he is working his plan. And scriptures go on over and over to tell us this. And here's Jesus' cry to us, just like he spoke to those, the, the Emmaus two. He said, Oh foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken about me. He doesn't want us to live that way. Because he knows that it leads to our discouragement. And he doesn't want us to live discouraged. He wants us to live with joy and and, and hope. And he knows that that kind of misunderstanding destroys our joy. 
So, so how do you know when you, when you strike on that joy of Jesus? How, how do you know what it would look like? It's kind of this question. When Jesus, and this is what I'll call my third, third point today, when Jesus brings joy, the way that you'll know it is you won't be able to keep it to yourself. You, it, you can't. You, you just won't be able to contain it. I want you to notice what happened to these disciples after being with the resurrected Jesus. Look at verse 28. It says, so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He, being Jesus, acted as if he were going to go further, but they urged him strongly. Side, sidebar, okay? One of the great, I think the greatest pandemic facing the church today is is that we're satisfied with how much of God we got. I know that was not grammatically correct, but just go with it, okay? We're just, we're just complacently satisfied with how much God we've got. And God has so much more for us. He's longing for us to, to want more. There are so many times in the scriptures where it looks like the Lord is just wanting to kind of get away. Um, you go to Genesis chapter 32, and in Genesis chapter 32, we see Jacob, who would eventually be named Israel, we see him wrestling with the, the angel of the Lord. And he's wrestling, and it, you know, it's kind of comical, because at any time, the angel could have thumped him on his head, and it was over. You know that. You know. But he, he wrestles with him. And the angel says, hey, dude, let me go. And here's what Jacob responds with. I'm not letting go till you bless me. I think God is waiting to hear that from you and from me, from his church. I'm not going to let go. I'm going to wrestle, God, until you bless me. There was a time when Jesus was, was teaching a great multitude. You can read about this in Mark chapter 6. Jesus was teaching this great multitude. And while he was teaching, um, he decided that it was time for them to go, and he sends his disciples on ahead. He tells them to go get in a boat and go over to Bethsaida. And so they get in the boat, and Jesus dismisses the crowd, and he goes up on a hill. He's going to pray, and he notices during the night that the disciples are not making any progress because the wind's against them. So what does Jesus do? Jesus walks out on the water. And here's what the Bible says. You go check it out, Mark 6. It says he intended to pass them by. He was, it's got, you know, they're, they're, they're not making any progress. They're dropping dead from tiredom. They can't paddle anymore. And Jesus is going to walk on by. But they call him back. I believe that Jesus is longing for people to make that kind of call back in their lives. You know, the book of Revelation tells us that he's standing at the door knocking, wanting us to welcome him in. And if we do, he'll, he'll come in and we'll, we'll have fellowship with him. Did you notice that's what these disciples did, the Emmaus too? It, it, it says this, that they urged him strongly saying, stay with us. Jesus is longing, I believe, for you and me to say, Jesus, stay with us. And did you notice what he did? He did. The Bible says he went in. He was with them. I want to read the end of the story to you. Verse 30 goes like this. It says, when he was at table with them, he took the bread, he blessed and broke it. He gave it to them, and their eyes were open, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures? And they rose at same hour, returned to Jerusalem, and they found the 11 of those who were with them gathered together. 
saying, the Lord has risen, what? Risen indeed. Not just risen. He's risen, he's risen indeed, and he's appeared to Simon. And then they, the, the Emmaus two, uh, two, told them what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. And they were talking about these things as they were doing that. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. Cleopas and this other disciple, they were unable to contain the joy that they had. Now remember, they were exhausted from Passover. They were exhausted from the emotional experience of, of seeing Jesus crucified, knowing that he had been buried. They were exhausted because their, their hopes were dashed. They were discouraged. They, they were headed home. They have this long walk, and they encounter the risen Savior and the power of his transformative life through his very word. And even though by this time it was probably dark, the Bible tells us they did what? They turned right around and headed back to Jerusalem. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think it was a two-hour walk this time. I believe they were power walking or running. I believe they made it there a whole lot quicker. And when they got there, they, they found the 11, and they found those gathered with them, and they could not help but tell those that they loved of their experience with the risen Savior and the power of his word and how it had transformed their lives and the new joy that they had. It was not containable. They had to get out there and, and tell others. Friends, if we want that kind of joy in our relationship with the Lord, we got to do what the Emmaus 2 did. We got to let him open the word to us. We got to beg him to open our eyes. And we've got to extend to him invitation. Jesus, come in. Come into the deeper places of my life. I've, I've not longed for you. I have withheld parts of my life from you. I want to find you on every page of this book. I want to fellowship with you because I want that kind of joy. And I want to be able to take that joy to people I know and love that are close to me but far away from you. You've heard us talk now for several weeks, maybe months even, actually a year or better, about what we're calling the growth plan. And the growth plan is a tool that we are going to officially open next Sunday. Now, it's already online. If you want to go online, you can get there. You can start up and, and, and start tracking on it if you want to. We're going to give some more direction next Sunday about it. But its whole purpose is to help you take those steps to let the word of God burn into you something new, to invite Jesus into deeper places in your life so that you no longer have a polka-dotted faith, so that you don't just stick on those spots that you have been stuck to and you miss out on so much that God has planned for you, that he would open the whole counsel of God to you through the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And so I pray that you will begin making plans, praying, opening your heart and mind to have this Emmaus encounter through this tool called the growth plan. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we just come now in these moments. It's that, that moment 
at the end of this time together where we, where we get to decide something about you. We, we get to decide whether we're going to invite you into something deeper in our lives. Lord, we know that you're, you're not going to force yourself on anyone. That's not who you are. But that you will draw near to us so that we could say, Jesus, come, come in. Stay with me. I believe right now, in all of our lives, Jesus is waiting to hear you give him that invitation. I believe this morning he has drawn near to you, that he has, he has come up right beside you. He is walking with you in this moment, and he is waiting for you to say, Jesus, I want more. I want more of you. I'm tired of living despondent. I'm tired of living defeated. I'm tired of living discouraged. Jesus, I want more of you. It's not just about seeking joy. It's about seeking Jesus. That's where joy comes from. Maybe today, maybe for the very first time, through the testimony of the Emmaus II, you've seen your need for Jesus. And you just want to invite him into your life. You You want to say to Jesus, come into my life. God's word says, if you will call on the name of Jesus with a repentant heart, trusting him with your whole life, Letting him be king and Lord and leader, just like Sophia testified this morning that she's done, that he will come in. He will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. That's, that's who he is. Most of us in this room, however, we've made that decision for the first time, and we just need to circle back around like those, like those disciples did and come back and see that he is risen indeed and that he has plans for our lives are so much better and just recommit today afresh Jesus I want to go deeper with you I want to I want your word to be opened to my mind and heart I'm gonna I'm gonna pour myself into it let it pour over me Jesus I want to see you on every page and you just cry out to Jesus whatever it takes God I'll do it yes I'll do it and that's the moment we've approached now where we could just stand together and proclaim through song even, yes, I will, Jesus. Yes, I will. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen.